You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined today by my two lovely, marvelous, fantabulous co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. We have the pleasure of having Marissa Nelson with us today. And Marissa, I want to make sure that I get all of your qualifications right, because every time I see in our correspondence, you have a ton of letters behind your name. And because your letters are the different ones than the MD that I traffic in each day, tell us what your letters are and tell us what they mean. (laughs) Okay. So hello, everyone. And thank you for bringing me into this space. It's wonderful to be with you. Okay. So I'm finishing another degree now. So with those new acronyms, I will be LMFT, which is Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, MS. ED, so that's master's in education. Then I will be, I'm an ASEC certified sex therapist. So that's CST and an ASEC certified sex educator. And that's CSE. That sounds like a lot of years of education there. <laughs> it's wonderful, delicious work. So I actually, I relish it. That's fabulous. And you work with Intimacy Moons, right? That's your organization. We'll get a little bit more into all of those letters and how they relate to everything that we do. But as we were chatting ahead of time, we were kind of talking about like, oh, what do you like to do on weekends and all that? And I love what you like to do and where you like to go. So tell us what your ideal weekend would be if you get to plan everything. And if you get to do what you want to do, what do you spend your weekends doing? Okay. So a couple of things. I have a five-year-old daughter, so it usually consists of ballet, but we actually really like ballet because we drop her off at ballet on Saturdays and And then all the parents go on this walk through Eastern Market and then we all go get coffee together and then we chit chat. And so that's kind of like our watering hole. And so it's wonderful to be able to just connect and just take a beautiful walk outside. It always starts with that. I tend to really like to go to open houses with my husband. I love open houses. That is like a guilty pleasure of mine. The inspiration, I really am into interior design. If I was not a therapist, I would be an architect, an interior designer. I really enjoy like interiors. I like to see textures, fabrics. Um, I will go to restoration hardware. I will. I, I, we just did a remodel a year ago and I picked out everything, every tile. And I just love 
I love it so much. And then I think Sundays are really relaxed days. They're days for friendship. So that's the day that I go see some of my best girlfriends or we hang out. Sometimes we'll go to the park or we'll have like a little dinner party. And then, of course, my husband and I have to round out the weekend with our favorite show, 90 Day Fiance. And we just... (laughs) That wouldn't have been what I guessed for some reason. I don't know why. Yes. (laughs) We always do date night on Sunday nights and watch our shows. That's cool. So do you analyze the people on 90 Day Fiance? Absolutely not. I'm off the clock. Oh, there you go. Okay. (laughs) I have just recently realized that there is a thing of therapists analyzing movies and TV shows because I I saw it with Encanto all of a sudden because, of course, I'm listening to it 24-7 because there are small human beings in my house. And as I was pulling stuff up on YouTube to pull up the music, I would see all these therapists going through it. And What's Encanto, Carrie? I don't even know. It's a Disney movie. Oh, Disney movie. Okay. And so I see all these things. And so what I'm wondering is when you're going through these open houses that you love, are you picking up things about the families that live there? Are they like builder home open houses where nobody actually lives there and it's all stage? Or is it all comers where there are families that live there and you can kind of look and see and get that snapshot into their life? I'm wondering how much appeal there is, not just to the architectural design side of you, but also to the this is my day in, day out. And oh, look, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to give you two interesting contexts. One, I do go to a lot of builder, like new construction open houses, but I do also and have been in open houses where it's just like a family that lives there. They might be moving and almost when I walk into the space, I feel a different energy. I think part of just being an empath and doing this work is that I can pick up on some of like the nonverbal things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think to a certain extent, we all have it. There's a certain feeling or a vibe that you get when you walk into a restaurant, you walk into somebody's house. So for me, I can walk in and it feels different. Does it feel homey? Does it feel like, oh, this is super cool. I can see myself here. It makes sense. Like, oh, that does match the price point. Or is it like, "Mm, no, give me like, three minutes and I'll know whether I need to keep going or not. I can just walk in three minutes. I'm like, I'm done. And then I can walk right out. I am exactly that way. And I'm so funny. Like when you go to like builder open houses, my OCD is always put at ease there because I like walk in and there's no crap anywhere. Everything has its place, (laughs) which is so not the actual home I live in because that's not my reality. But it's like, ooh, I like this. This is my happy place that I could never actually live in. See, I agree with that, Susan. But when I walk in those houses, I look at the white carpet and I'm like, they don't have kids or the white sofa and go, that's not going to stay white for very long. It looks beautiful when you see it, but it's like, there's no way you could really live in this as a family without staining like all these white and beige things here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the second context that I think is interesting is clients. And now that we've been doing Zoom, there's an added dimension of being able to see them in their environment. Oh, yeah. Them coming to me in office. So it is interesting to be able to see what people's distractions are, what people like how they kind of clothe their space and like, what are the things that they like? And, you know, I'm able to see one of my clients like, oh, I love that. There's usually a throw that's on that couch. She's, yes, there is. It's right here. So you, there's like a familiarity that you have with their even space. How they even clothe themselves. Cause early on was Zoom. 
I had a lot of couples where like they'd be laying in bed, the husband wouldn't have a shirt on. I was like, wow, okay. I mean, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> All of us have a little bit yeah. more context now to who our, our clients really are. It's phenomenal. All right, Susan, do you have our questions of the day? I do. I do. Okay. So our first one is my husband and I got pregnant very quickly and naturally when I was 28 years old. Unfortunately, we learned that our baby was affected by SMA at 22 weeks. They decided to terminate and pursue IVF with PGTM. She had an HSG and saline ultrasound that were both normal. Follicle count at baseline was 26 and all blood work was normal. They had a first egg retrieval and only retrieved five mature eggs of which three fertilized and made it to day six blastocyst. All embryos were chromosomally normal and one was unaffected by SMA. They transferred one embryo, but the transfer failed. Their physician is very optimistic and considered the failed transfer to be a bummer. Do you recommend any differences in my next cycle? I was just going to say, how old is she now? Has it just been a couple of years or? I would say she's probably 30-ish. Okay. I mean... We've talked about this before. I would expect that probably your physician is going to kind of look at your stimulation and certainly make some tweaks because, you know, we can't help with the chromosomal part of it, but we can help with trying to improve the number of eggs. So my guess would be whatever your protocol was, they probably would change it around a little bit in the hopes that they could get more eggs, basically. I would guess that there is something in your stem that your physician can probably put their finger on and say, I would really like to change X, Y, or Z, you know, something with a trigger, something with the timing, like there's probably something that they're seeing. So I would talk to them because they probably have a good idea. Now that is not always the case. hundred percent of the time, there are people who we think are going to do really well. And you get there and you're like, I have no idea what happened because that was a textbook, gorgeous stem. And I don't, I don't know why that said, we still usually, say, give it a try again. Because if you don't try again, then you're in a tough spot of like, well, do we go naturally and take the risk of having another affected child, which is huge for SMA. And it's also important to remember getting pregnant naturally is very different than IVF. There's a lot of things that have to happen. And so something that you may not realize was a perfect, you know, Swiss cheese of all the holes lining up such that you've got a, you know, that great natural pregnancy, even if it was affected, everything else worked. That's a little bit harder to accomplish with IVF because you're seeing everything along the way. I totally agree. You know, one of my sayings is that IVF is not only therapeutic and that we're helping you get pregnant, but it's also diagnostic. Now, a few things I'm kind of reading into it. You said you only had the five mature eggs. If there were lots of immature eggs that you didn't mention, that's a little bit different ball game. And in that case, you may need maybe like a dual trigger or something like that. When you're looking at you only got five eggs and those five eggs were mature, then I would say you need to be stimulated harder in some fashion without knowing exactly what your stimulation is. Because with a antral follicle count of 26, I can say everybody sitting here would definitely expect you to have gotten at least twice what you did, if not more. And it may have been one of those situations of, oh, we really don't have infertility. We're going to gently stimulate you and you should do fine. And sometimes even if you have a robust antral follicle count, you may need a little bit more meds to get that quote robust stimulation that we would typically be expecting. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Do we have another question? 
We do. This reader did put in a whole bunch of additional information, which is great, but really she has one main question. And that question is, do women who have been able to get pregnant naturally have a higher success rate than nulliparous women? So nulliparous means you haven't had babies before when trying to conceive through IVF, which is a great question. That is a great question. And it's something that we hit a lot of very frequently because a lot of people have secondary infertility. And the answer to that is, is both yes and no, because it depends on the circumstances. So if you are in your you know 20s, early 30s, and you've had a bunch of kids and you come back and you say, we really really want sex selection, or I have a new partner who has a vasectomy, or I have the same partner who had a vasectomy. And then we decided we want one more kid. Those situations are things that we see really commonly. And so in those cases, in general, yes, you tend to have pretty good success rates. Not always because IVF is not the same as natural conception. Someone can have a low egg count and be very capable of getting pregnant on their own. But when you do it with IVF, it doesn't work in their favor. In a kind of different vein, if someone has waited several years, so let's say they had three kids in their 20s, early 30s, and now they're 40, that's a different ballgame. And that is not as easy because there's age coming into that, which means that they probably wouldn't have a super easy time getting pregnant without IVF. And they won't necessarily have a really easy time getting pregnant with IVF. And I think all things being equal, you know, if you're close to the same age, nothing's changed dramatically. I mean, you know, the, the good thing is we know that the sperm made it to the egg. So that tells us at least one of your fallopian tubes is open, found a way to get in the egg, the egg fertilized and developed and implanted in the baby grew. So, you know, all things being equal, I think it is helpful that you've had a pregnancy on your own before, but certainly not a guarantee that it's going to happen again, unfortunately. So one piece of information, this listener is 41. And so I think that what Carrie had just mentioned, age is huge. Age is so gigantic, whether you've had babies before or you haven't had babies before and being more aggressive than less aggressive and time's not your friend, do it today and not tomorrow. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to get into the meat of our discussion today and why we are so grateful to have Marissa, because all of us see this as clinicians with the patients that we're working with, where you can see the stress on the couple's faces and you can see it and how they interact. So really what we wanted to talk about is how can couples remain connected and maintain intimacy through this crazy fertility roller coaster. And so Marissa, this is your world. This is your your area, what do you tell people who are working with you who have, you know, have these kind of issues? Are they coming to you because they need help because they're going through fertility and it's really stressful or because of the relationship issues? Like how does this work in your world? For me, couples come in and they are brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. They're brokenhearted because I've seen a lot of people who are like, I went through four IUIs. We've depleted our savings. I just don't even know what to do. We've lost hope. Or they've had a pregnancy loss. There's just a, gr- a great sense of disappointment and just loss and lack of control. The uncertainty is really the space that I hold for them. But couples deal with things differently. Each person deals with the stress of everything that's going on very differently. I can be working with somebody who's in the middle of a cycle and still has a huge project that's going on at work. Mm -hmm. That is trying to kind of like take time off work to go to the doctor's appointment, to come back to work, to be on the Zoom call, to get a voicemail that 
with bad news and still have to hold it together and finish their Zoom call. That's kind of the space that we're holding for them. And because couples deal with things differently, what happens and what I often hear is I feel so alone Uh or my partner doesn't get it. Yeah. And that's where I really feel like I see most of the couples that I work with. I feel like my role and the work, if you're listening out there, the work is to use this very vulnerable time as the birthplace for connection and vulnerability. That there is so much that's happening as you are making decisions, as couples are trying to kind of figure out what is the best path forward for us to realize our dream. Also, while being triggered, because going through and trying to conceive and going through the fertility journey is touching every part of their life, their finances, their body, their self-esteem, their relationship, their own relationship with their own parents, and some of the baggage and trauma and memories and feelings that come up with that. And all of this come up with loss, uncertainty, anxiety. And so that's really where I believe couples can use this opportunity to grow closer together because you're triggered. It allows you to be able to be there for your partner and say, this is what I'm really going through. This is how I feel. And to be able to share in the experience together, as opposed to being isolated and going through it individually and not really touching base or the perception that I need to be strong for my partner and not show them how I really feel. When I look at my patients and keep it more with partners, because this is, it doesn't really hold true with gender lines. My lady couples, my guy couples, my heterosexual, like oftentimes there's one partner who is more emotionally in tune and the other partner is more practically in tune. The money, the stats, the all of those types of things. How do these two people communicate with each other when they're in the midst of upheaval? And... As you answer that, how does the receiving person receive and respond in a positive way? So we have to create safety and communication in order for us to get to where we need to go. In order for us to have these more deep conversations about everything that's going on and how they're both handling this process, it's really important to establish safe communication. What does that mean? It really means there is safety and space for my truth, even if it doesn't align with what you feel like is the truth, like both of us get to have our own truths, that when I share with you, I will not be blamed, shamed, or criticized. That In my sharing with you, I'm not going to be reprimanded. There are not going to be consequences to me sharing, but that you're going to hold that place for me and that there is an openness to be curious about where I'm coming from. There's an openness to receive where I'm coming from. And there's also an openness to have compassion from where I'm coming from. That is how you create safe communication. Can you do that without a therapist? Yes. How? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think about not just my patients, but also in, in my own life where in some relationships, I'm the warm and fuzzy one and other ones, I'm the practical one. Like how, how do you do that when you're the person who's the, okay, we need to do this. And your other partner is presumably a nice human being, but not necessarily wired that way. Like what's your opening line? In the world, we have maximizers and minimizers. I happen to be a maximizer, but some of us that like to like problem solve in real time, we're emotive. We like to talk. We like to like, if we have a problem, let's tackle it now. Let's talk about it. Like nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's getting any sleep until we figure this out, right? That is my husband to a T. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? And then there's minimizers who are internal processors who are like, you know what? I want to wait and respond until I respond because I don't want to respond and say the wrong thing. Like I recognize, like I want to be there for my partner. I don't want to escalate the situation. Or sometimes I minimize my own feelings or I hold back from what you know, my own feelings, because I recognize that this, there's a lot going on for my partner and I don't want to rock the boat. So there's various different dynamics and ways that minimizers and maximizers show up. So like, this is really confusing me because when you describe those things, like at first I was like, oh, that's who I am. And then, then you started talking, I'm like, oh, that's who I am. Well, luckily we can interchange based on the topic because of course there's like a home base. If you tend to be a little bit more emotive and a problem solver, you're a fixer. You want to fix things immediately. And I feel like the reason why I want to fix things is because the intensity of emotion, you don't really want to sit with that. I'm definitely a fixer. (laughs) But the interesting thing about what I thought you were going to say at the beginning is that those kind of people, you said they're more emotive. I'm the emotive one, but yet I'm not the one that wants to have the argument. I want to just like go somewhere and go into a cave. Oh yeah, I'm a fixer, but I I don't want to deal with the argument. (laughs) We can be fixers and conflict avoidant. Yeah. Right? Because what we're talking about is like, how do we handle conflict when it comes up? We don't just go into conflict and want conflict, but if it is upon us, we want to be able to fix it. We want to be able to respond appropriately. But there are some times where people do, you know, whether it's minimize their own feelings because that's how they grew up. And in the face of intensity, they are just kind of the ones who want to be a little bit more calm. When they interact in a partnership, this is where it's important where if you're a maximizer or you're somebody that tends to fix there's going to have to be some calibration and balance. So if you're a maximizer, you're going to want to lean out a little bit because you're so used to, you may communicate a lot. And for somebody who is receiving that, they're receiving a lot of your intensity and energy. I I don't label it as any emotion, but you can just feel it in your body that there's a lot of energy coming towards you. And that feels threatening for some people. And so people tend to shut down. They tend to not talk about their feelings. And that's not what we want, especially when we're talking about something as important as your relationship, as your sexuality, as, you know, your, your intimacy and your closeness. A lot of times I'll see patients who come and they feel, sometimes they'll verbalize it. And sometimes it's just in the way they interact about how they feel. And you mentioned this earlier about how you feel so out of control. I see that a lot. I think in patients that are like, well, here's my stack of vitamins I'm taking. They're taking like 20 vitamins. And, you know, I'm making sure that I only drink a cup and a half of coffee because I've heard two cups. I mean, they're just, they're so, they're just so trying to control their world. And I think it's hard for them to kind of see that that's sort of the way they're coping with their anxiety. And and how do you kind of handle those patients or deal with those patients? Or how do they deal with that together in a relationship? I think that one, it's about the acknowledgement of control to me is synonymous with anxiety, that there's something happening for someone, people who like everything just so. It is a coping mechanism, of course, but for me, it's basically slowing them down because typically when you have anxiety, you move quick. (laughs) There's a fast pace to things. There's a, a quickness because you have to move fast because if you don't move fast, it gives you a lot of time to slow down and feel. Mm -hmm. So I think my work is is somatic, slowing down the mind, slowing 
slowing down the body, helping clients reconnect to their body. Because even just the process, there's a lot of needles, there's a lot of, there's just a a lot that happens to the body that people, if you're running from the body and you feel uncomfortable, you're going to try and micromanage everything else that you feel that you have a sense of control over. So it's slowing things down. It's helping them through mindfulness, through connection back to their body, tuning in, like, where do you hold chronic pain? If you ask people that question, even your patients, you're going to say, oh, I have this neck pain or I have this back pain. And then I tell them, okay, cool. Let's just take a moment and quiet ourselves. I'll breathe with you. I'll take as long as you need. Let's breathe into it. Tell me if there's any images that come with it. Is there a sensation that comes with this? Is there an intensity, a pressure that comes with it? Is there any images that come to your mind Those or an emotion that's behind it? They'll be like... I guess I hold my sadness or my stress there. So first they'll say stress, say, okay, tell me a little bit more about your stress. Let's go a level deeper into the stress. We breathe into that spot. What do you really feel? And then they'll start crying. Yeah. I think when patients actually admit that it's really sadness that they're feeling, it's not anger or anxiety. Once they get to that point, I feel like even though I'm not a therapist, I feel like we've made some progress here. Now you felt that it's sadness and they start crying because I think that helps them feel better in the end. Do you find that it's often helpful to see one person first and then the couple or the couple together? What is the best method if we have people who are listening who are like, I'm interested in this, but I really don't know if my partner's going to go for it. What are your words of advice for those types of situations? You can do couples therapy with one person. I do it all the time. As a systems thinker, I believe if you change one person in the system, the system naturally has to calibrate. That makes sense. If you show up differently in your relationship, your partner has to respond in a different way. I think too often in relationships, we're playing a game of chicken. Like, (laughs) well, I'm going to wait for you to change before I'm going to change. Like, I'm waiting for you to give before I give. Like, I'll share if you share. And many times it's like, No, we have to begin with us. And we have to begin also by addressing like how we are showing up to our relationship and how we're asking for what we need. So bringing this back to the couple, one of the things that couples can do to navigate this process with a little bit more ease is people often don't ask for what they need. They make requests through criticism or they make requests through other ways that are not connecting for the relationship, as opposed to bringing their partner in and saying, I need you. I'm really struggling. I'm really scared about this. But many times it will come out in the form of criticism or it will feel like you're walking on eggshells Mm -hmm. and a lot of partners don't have language for their emotions. And so if you don't have language for your emotions, you don't know how to talk about it. So I think that if we can start to make requests for what you actually need, and sometimes it's okay to tell your partner, I know that I'm feeling sadness, but I don't know what I need right now. Maybe I need a hug. Maybe right now I need some closeness. So how do we ask for closeness? How do we ask for connection? Because many times when there is an ask, it may just be for sexuality or there may be cues for intimacy, but not cues for affection or cues for comfort. And that's really what is needed to be integrated into this process. I don't know about your girl's experience. It is rare for someone to bring up sex to me. It's funny. I remember one time I was at a church thing and we were talking about talking about sex to our kids and everybody turned to look at me and I'm like, (laughs) I don't talk about sex. I talk about stuff when sex doesn't work. We talk about the timing and the number of times and how many hours to wait, but that's about the end of it. (laughs) 
And so, I mean, we're often telling our patients, ironically, don't have sex because we don't want them to get pregnant at the wrong time where we're going to accidentally screw something up. But when you're looking at someone who is holding so much anxiety that they're going a million miles an hour and they're holding the chronic pain or stress or sadness or whatever it may be. So you have these two closed doors right next to each other that they both want to open. They just, they're waiting for the other one. And, and it's really hard to meet in the middle. So how do you get there so that you can have a sex life in the midst of fertility crap? Well, I think that it is the acknowledgement of what is and the acceptance of what is, because many times as you're saying that both couples are in their closed doors, but they're not communicating what's happening for each of them. And then when they do communicate about it, it may turn into an argument or somebody may feel shame or guilt and then they don't want to talk about it. So it's the kind of like the topic that's in, you know, nobody talks about and we kind of do what we do. I think that I want sexuality and what I work with my couples is that I want sexuality to be affluent in talking about how you're feeling, your emotions and your intimacy, just as other parts of your life. There needs to be more of a comfort with sharing your desires, what is erotic for you and what your needs are. That maybe during this process of trying to conceive that sexuality is about comfort. It can be about pleasure. And I do think that that's another piece of it too, that many times as couples are moving through their own treatment path that it's stripped of pleasure and pleasure is actually what is needed for them during that time. So for me, I'm like, how do we regain pleasure? Even if it's not in sexuality right now, as we're working our way through that in other aspects of your life, because people, your, your life is so much bigger than just trying to conceive right now. How do we find pleasure in just savoring food? How do we find pleasure in like bringing in the world through our senses? Like what are the, the ways in which we can practice gratitude and mindfulness? Because even if you're not able to get pregnant at this point in time and we're working on it, it is a work in progress. You know, there are so many other things in most of our lives that are going really well. So how can we practice not only and hold space for gratitude, but then sometimes hold space for grief as well? How can we move through these with a little bit more ease and bring in our support system to use and to share that with our partner, even though I know that it seems hard, many partners are feeling the exact same thing, but they don't know how to say it. So the first thing is helping them to expand and have that conversation or the series of conversations so that they can identify, wow, you feel alone. I feel alone too. You're sad and you're hurt. I'm hurt too. And, or this may overlap with some of the stuff that we've been through in our relationship before, because if you didn't feel, if you feel alone and isolated and like your partner's not there for you, I wonder if it's also triggering some past stuff where you also felt like your partner was not there for you. So it's not just what's happening present in the fertility process. It's also working through the unresolved stuff that is also impacting the fertility journey. And I think once you do that, then we work on the body and reincorporating pleasure for both of them. So give us some specific information you'd give a couple, like say they said, okay, we're, we're going to start to try and connect. And, and maybe you've seen them for a few visits and they're starting to connect more emotionally what specific information do you give them about sex life, about things that will help or make their sex life better or, or, or make it existent in some cases, like some cases, it's not <laughs> even about better or worse. It's about, can we have one? Yeah, exactly. 
Number one, it's the rediscovery of pleasure for yourself. That many times that, you know, it's helping clients rediscover desire because too often I hear that desire is I'm my desire comes from my partner really, really, really wants to make love and to be sexually connected. And I don't, and I'm doing it because I, I just want to get it over with, or I'm doing it because I'm feeling pressure from my partner or because I feel like I, it's been a while and I should be doing this. And so re-scripting that narrative to be like, okay, let's take a pause. If you took a pause from partnered sex with the intention of we're working our way back to you know, desire together, how do we both focus on our own sexuality simultaneously, share what's happening, and then work your way through to partnered sex? So for me, I'm giving homework exercises about self-pleasure. I'm giving book suggestions. I think some really great books where we can start I have some that, you know, that I will pull and actually give as like a resource guide, but one is Sex Smart for the couple. It is a wonderful book that helps you examine how childhood beliefs impact sexuality now. And so it is everything from nudity to self-pleasure to faith and religion and how all of that has created who you are sexually. These are many of the questions that I ask in my own practice when I do a sexual history. So that's one as far as kind of like something that you could read and start connecting the dots on. I think the second thing is really, again, about self-pleasure and understanding what do I want? What do I like? And connecting to your body and your own sense of eroticism. What are those things that bring me to desire? And how do I turn myself on? But how do I turn myself off? Many times there is desire that is there, but as it comes up, then there will be the anxiety, the fearful thought, the, oh, if I do this, then I wonder what they're going to say. The spectatoring where you are in sex, but you are really looking and viewing and criticizing and critiquing yourself. Spectatoring is almost like a sports announcer that's in your head, <laughs> like, you know, giving you a play by play of the sexual experience. Like you are saying, oh, well, I wonder what's going to happen here. And he's going to touch me here. Or she's going to touch me here. And my partner's going to do this to me. And I don't really like that. And I wonder, and your mind, you're oscillating attention and you're not keeping your erotic focus. And so it's really important, even as you are trying to understand your own desire so that you can then co-create desire and share that with a partner. So your partner knows, okay, how can we create space together? How can we have space for our own sexuality as a couple? And what do you need? Not just in service to your partner, but what do I like? What do I want? And even during this process now, there's a gentleness that comes with, or maybe not. There's plenty of clients who use this you know, time to expand their own sexuality and to learn more about what feels good to them and to play with sensation and different ways of expanding sexuality because it can be a lot of fun and you can use this experience with communication, of course, and safety to really expand your definition of sexuality. And sex is so much bigger than intercourse. There's lots of things that you can do to bring pleasure for yourself and for your partner that has nothing to do with intercourse. And so I think that that is my wish for most couples to kind of rediscover desire for themselves, to re-love their own bodies because it can feel hard during this process, to have that gentleness and the self-compassion to know that it's okay to be where you're at in your fertility journey, in your weight, in your body, you know, wherever you're at, like it's totally okay. And there is a place where with bravery, you can hold your partner 
love on your partner and be a better receiver of that love and connection because we're all good givers. A lot of us are really, really, really good givers. But even if our partner says, are you okay? There's plenty of times where people are like, I'm fine. And they're not. So how can you bring in pleasure? How can you receive it? How can you accept it? Even when it's there, because there's plenty of partners that are out there. They're like, I'm here. I want to love you. I'm here for you. I'm waiting for you, but you just don't know how to receive it. Wow. That's great advice. Wow. Those are some great pearls of wisdom. I wish you were in Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do online appointments? Yeah. So I do virtual coaching. So I have clients all over the world. And then also I'm creating a community just for couples going through fertility or anybody, anybody really who, whether it's egg freezing or surrogacy, I'm really creating community to help people just reconnect to themselves and to also be able to navigate this process with a little bit more ease and a little bit more self-compassion, because I think that we all want that for, that's our biggest hope for our clients. We don't want anybody to suffer without any support. Absolutely. Well, Marissa, you definitely have a gift and a passion. And I'm so glad you are in this fertility space because Lord knows we have lots of patients who can use your wisdom and your guidance. And this has been amazing to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. And it's wonderful. Your questions are fabulous. I think that what I love is that we are so aligned in our wanting, you know, all of the people that we see to just have full, healthy, amazing lives and to have everything that they ever want, whatever the challenges are, like we just want them to win. And I think that's one of the reasons why I just really enjoy just being able to have this conversation, being able to be here with you because we're so lockstep on how much we care about the work that we do. Thank you so much, Marissa. To our listeners, we have been talking with Marissa Nelson, who is absolutely fabulous. And so we hope that you have been able to get some joy, get some information out of this. I'm hoping that this has unlocked a couple of key spots in people's brains of like, oh yeah, maybe we can get some help here and and realize really you're not alone. There are people who have entire practices built around this and that's because you are not alone. So thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review um, for us. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. So hop on by, leave us a like, leave us a follow and let us know what you're thinking. You can also visit fertilitydocsensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be in on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love episode ideas as well. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Theralogics. Preparing for pregnancy is not just a woman's responsibility. In addition to the Theranatal line, Theralogix developed fertility supplements for men, including two formulas of Conception XR to support healthy sperm. These supplements are independently tested and certified by NSF to ensure content purity, accuracy, and safety.